Hi, I'm Nicole Ferraro, and this is The Divide, a podcast from Light Reading exploring the ongoing digital divide, why and where it still exists, and what needs to be done to get people everywhere connected to reliable high-speed internet. Today, I'm joined by Francella Ochillo, Executive Director of Next Century Cities, a nonprofit organization based in Washington, D.C. that works to support local officials and community leaders in their efforts to expand broadband. She and I discussed the challenges local communities face in having their voices represented in broadband policymaking, as well as FCC mapping data and how inaccurate information at the federal level imperils state efforts, and the work that Next Century Cities is doing to ensure local communities can get access to the broadband funding and services they need. Francella, thank you so much for joining me. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. I couldn't be more excited to be here. I feel the same way. So let's jump right in. To start off, just tell me a little bit about Next Century Cities and what your role is in helping communities address the digital divide. And what has this past year been like for you? Well, 2020 has been a complete blur. It doesn't matter which city you're in or what organization you lead. Um, I am fortunate enough to lead Next Century Cities. I'm the executive director. And we work to support local officials in their efforts to expand broadband connectivity. So that means that we support local initiatives to expand broadband access, to increase adoption. We do a lot of work to actually highlight um, specific issues that might hinder those rates, those adoption rates. So maybe it's about broadband data or you know, addressing digital redlining or asking questions about the, the information gaps in between local, state, and government officials where there are assumptions that they have relationships. More importantly, I, I think our goal is always to make sure that we are elevating local officials to make sure that they can be part of the policymaking process at the local, federal, and state um, levels, and that we make sure that we actually document community-level perspectives, which are often absent from those proceedings. Just out of curiosity, do you feel like that's starting to change a little bit with the past year being what it was and people suddenly being aware that the digital divide is a problem, You know, even though it's been a problem for 20 years? Do you feel that it's any easier to get those community voices in the room than it has been? I think that the pandemic has caused people in every single community to recognize that they have some sort of digital divide. There are some communities that might have, maybe they only have like that last 5% that they're working to get connected. And there are other communities that might have a full third of their population that might not have broadband access of, of any kind. But one thing it doesn't matter is whether I'm talking to local officials in those communities, large and small. I think there's a general understanding about the utility of broadband. I think there's more of an awareness that the households and the people that are struggling with reliable access are also locked out of other opportunities, not just limited to remote learning, but thinking about do they have economic opportunities similar to their metropolitan counterparts? Do they have the same health outcomes, opportunities to participate in their democracy, to access government services, to have criminal justice, or to have um, access to other tools that essentially enhance their quality of life? Those questions are a little bit easier to answer because there's maybe more of a baseline understanding. But in terms of who has agency to affect those policies, no, I don't think that we've made as much progress as we think. Because I think that just because there's awareness and understanding does not mean that those voices are celebrated in the actual proceedings 
where funding and policy is developed. Not great, but hopefully we can <laughs> we can keep pushing on that. <laughs> so um, apart from that, uh, certainly that hurdle, um, tell me about some other existing hurdles uh, in the communities where you're working when it comes to both addressing internet access and adoption. And are those primarily issues with local policy, national policy, or with the providers who are tasked with bringing service to those areas? Well, I'll take that in a few parts. Uh, first, focusing on what we do to support broadband access. So when you think about supporting broadband access, there's very different policymaking and initiatives that happen at the local, state, and federal level. Very often at the local level, those are going to be the officials that they still go to the same grocery store, their kids go to the same high school. They are very in touch with their constituents, what they need, what they don't have, what are the connectivity gaps? What are the ongoing hurdles? At the state level, that's where we're going to have a little bit more where they have the information gathering, a little bit more of the not only information sharing, but really instructions and resources for municipalities that might not have that type of expertise locally. And then when we think about the importance of the federal, um, whether it's the FCC, Congress, um, other federal agencies that actually work on broadband access, that's actually the place where the resources exist because they have the deepest pockets. So when we think about how how does some small community in Iowa or some tiny community in Vermont, how do they actually get the connectivity that we need? All three of those levels of government play a role. So it might be in really thinking about, does the broadband data accurately depict the type of infrastructure that's nearby? Also, are we just counting whether or not households have proximity to, to the equipment, or are we actually seeing they have the ability to afford it so that we can get that connection across the front door? And then we're also thinking about even if we are to rely on, for example, the FCC's data, if the FCC says, yes, your community is served, or yes, your community has most of the people in your community are served. The question is really then, if we find out that that information is wrong, very often that community's already been put at a disadvantage because not only is the FCC's data wrong and locked you out of federal resources, usually state data relies on FCC data as their baseline. So you have now been locked out of federal resources and then you are locked out of state resources. So those municipalities are very often simply on their own. So then when we turn to the adoption issue, that's where we start asking questions about even if someone has access, can they afford it? Do they have the devices? Do they have the digital literacy to benefit from it? All of those questions that come afterwards one of the things that I think is uh, highly problematic is that I think, uh, you know, now more and more people are talking about digital equity. And for us, digital equity is very much a part of the actual design for the deployment. And then also about, you know, how we're making sure that people can benefit from it. And it forces you when you center that as a priority to ask questions about even if we got the money to build the infrastructure, have we supported the community level partnerships that will support adoption. So that is where we come in to essentially provide resources and also to make sure that those community level perspectives about both the access challenges and the adoption challenges are reflected on dockets at all three levels of government. So are those conversations that you're having as policies are being crafted? How, how does that work that you say, hey, don't forget, you have to actually help people get connected and use the internet? Sometimes that means that we are reaching out to support um, local officials, whether they're in city council meetings, maybe they're circulating ideas in op-eds, they're looking to do explainers with showing, um, here's the numbers in our community, here's why it matters, here's how it impacts other societal goals that are in our community. So we're not just talking about it, uh, people being connected for the sake of being connected. What we're looking to show is why does it matter? And also, instead of just focusing on this household is disconnected, 
really thinking about how that puts an overall tax on the entire community that they touch. Really just trying to explain the why it matters piece is where we serve probably is the the most important piece at the local level. In terms of state and federal tribunals, quite frankly, we're one of the only organizations that actually does help ensure that local perspectives are documented in those proceedings. Now, some municipalities have their own counsel. Some of them are very plugged in and have great relationships with their state broadband officers. So they're always going to be the first in line. But there are thousands, and I say that again, there are thousands of municipalities across the country that simply do not have the capacity or the expertise to file any sort of letter, public filing, any sort of legal comments about the broadband policy that they need to improve connectivity in their community. So that's a challenge on many levels. And one that I'm thinking about beyond just being able to ask for help is that there's going to be a lot of funding coming in pretty soon. You know, there's broadband bills in Congress and the president wants to spend, you know, maybe $100 billion on it. Even the Republicans are putting forward $65 billion. So it seems like we will spend a lot of money on broadband. How do communities prepare for, for that kind of influx of cash that's to be used to address this problem when they're not even equipped to fill out the proper paperwork to tell people what they need? One of the first things that we've been telling um, communities to do is to get in touch with their state broadband officer. If you looked at the state broadband officer landscape, I remember back in around 2017 or 2018, um, when I did a count, there were maybe 12 or 13. And here we are in 2021, when there's actually probably closer to 30 or 31, where you have uh, states who actually have a designated office and or person who is supposed to either gather information, help coalitions, nonprofits, even ISPs partner on deployment strategies and things like that. What we're looking to do is to make sure that local officials actually benefit from their collective knowledge, because very often that's going to be a clearinghouse for not only information about funding that's coming in, but funding that's going out the door, really to give them information about RFP processes, um, requests for information processes, and really what are also the other agencies that they should be applying to for support. Because I think that people would automatically assume, oh, I'm only going to go to my state broadband office or maybe to the FCC to see what maybe the FCC via USAC offers this funding. When there are actually a lot of federal agencies, whether it's Department of Education, Department of Agriculture, NTIA, um, uh, there are lots of agencies that actually do fund broadband projects. And quite frankly, a lot of municipalities simply don't know about it. That's a really good point. So you mentioned a little while ago the FCC mapping. So I want to turn and talk a little bit about that. Because under Commissioner Rosenworcel, uh, there has been a new effort to redo mapping, which is very important and, and great. It's unclear to me, however, how those efforts are reaching disconnect people. There's an online site where you can report your problems with your personal broadband, um, which requires an internet connection. Um, and there's a speed test app that FCC is encouraging people to use. Again, you're going to need an internet connection for that. Not to mention, I'm just highly skeptical that the general public is like keeping up with what the FCC is, is um, putting out there in terms of their press releases. And this is not to disparage any of the efforts, because I think that they're really important and, and we need to be taking steps to fix mapping. But I'm just curious for your take on the, the best ways for the FCC to collect this data, since it's so crucial that we get this right. We have been filing comments on broadband data for years on ways okay. for the FCC to improve. So this is an issue that is very clear, near and dear to our hearts. Okay, and it's great. also uh, the specific topic of our upcoming report um, that's called Broadband Mapping Across the United States, Local, State, 
and federal um, methods and contradictions. And what we did was we studied every single state and territory and collected how people were actually using um, not only FCC data, but did they have their own state initiatives? Um, What were the uh, most promising and even some of the best practices from local initiatives? And one thing that we found was that there was a discrepancy in every single place that we studied. (laughs) So the thing that they all shared in common was that we found discrepancies. And that's why we called it methods and contradictions. So I think that it's important for us to say, yes, all of these things, when they are actually responding to public interest advocates calls for them to say, we need to have correct correction methodologies. We need to make sure that local officials, when they actually see incorrect information, can reach out to the FCC to correct it because there are states that already have that in place. We also need to add adoption information to that because quite frankly, does it matter if we say that 77% of people in County X have proximity to some digital infrastructure that maybe 80% of the households can't afford? So does it matter if I'm in some remote part of Texas where they say my, my county is served, but no one can afford the $120 a month? I think we need to ask some hard questions about that. And that's another way that we can improve it where, yes, that might be a step forward in terms of bringing the digital infrastructure nearby, but we need to actually complete that step by getting it across the threshold of the front door. Also, when we're thinking about data, I think it's really important for us to acknowledge that using Form 4077 data as the baseline is not only problematic, it has been the most insidious part of this entire storyline. It's the fact that every single year we talk about the fact that it's inaccurate, it's it's inadequate, and yet every single year it is used as the baseline. And when you have data that, you know, when you use a form where you only have to say that household is able to be served just to mark an entire census block is served, that is inherently problematic and we would not conduct any other science experiment that way. So it doesn't really make sense that we're doing that with something that is essentially one of the most important utilities of our time. And so for us in our upcoming report, we're focused on not criticizing the FCC for what they did wrong, but actually saying, here's the need for why we want you to improve. And here are ways that states have taken this on into their own hands, even when they didn't have the resources to do so. I want to just switch over to uh, a couple of other debates that are going on amongst industry stakeholders and their respective lobbyists about what technologies should be funded for national broadband builds, as well as whether local governments should be able to provide broadband. What's your take on these issues based on the needs of actual communities that you talk to and work with? Do you think that fiber has to be the only way forward? Is there room for other types of technologies like fixed wireless and satellite? And I just love your perspective on municipal broadband, uh, whether independently provided by local governments or in partnership with um, local providers. I think one thing that concerns me is that sometimes when we're talking about does it have to be fiber or coax cable, the truth is that we always want to have the best technology that is available now. And I think that if it's going to hold up a project five or 10 years to say you should have fiber instead of coax cable, then maybe that neighborhood we need to serve it with fiber for the sake of making sure at least for the next five or 10 years that community can operate. So I don't want us to delay progress for the sake of arguing over whether or not what is the best technology. As of today, yes, fiber is probably going to be the most reliable, the fastest technology, and and probably I think that any community that has the choice is going to chance down choose fiber. But if you don't have a choice and you are relying on DSL, do you really want to have two and three years of arguments over whether or not you should get coax or fiber? 
No, you want to make sure you can get broadband to your residents. So in terms of that first part of your question, we are in favor of the best technology that is available to a community to ensure that every single resident in every pocket of their community can have equal access to the internet. To your question about whether or not it should be um, fixed or satellite, I think that satellite is changing. And I think that there might be a day, whether it's five or 10 or even 20 years from now, where maybe those things are equivalent. But what we know today is that fixed and satellite are not equivalent. And I think that we know that fixed connections are going to be the most reliable connections. In that sense, we're excited about being able to use forward-looking technologies and experimentation. We're completely behind that. But we do want people to have reliable access. And I, I think that as that's con continuously changing, the ways um, how we get there is still up for debate. I think that it's a very expensive argument to have because if you look at the cost per household to experiment with satellite, it is much higher than actually deploying fiber to every single one of the households that it's dis that's disconnected. So I think those are legitimate accounting questions that should be asked. But overall, we're always in favor of progress. And then finally, I think just as an overall point, I think when we're talking about deployment, I think we have to ask questions about even if we are going to certain communities, local officials are constantly battling whether or not they got to the entire part of those communities. And I think local officials end up being the last line of defense to make sure that that broadband deployment is equitable. And so we need to empower them to be able to tell ISPs, hey, we appreciate you going to the city center, but we're going to need you to go around the edges. Because what happens is that you have all of these counties that are against each other, where the city centers are very connected, and the places outside of them, you literally fall off the grid. So we definitely like to see a little bit more intentionality and thoughtfulness behind supporting local efforts to make sure that it's fair. Thank you for keeping up with my multi-part questions. Um, you're doing great. And I will end this interview with a single part question, okay. which is just what's ahead for next century cities for, for the rest of 2021? What's your What are you going to be focusing on? Well, we are really excited about not only focusing on broadband mapping report that comes out that is honestly was a labor of love, many, many hours put into the, <laughs> to the research and to make sure that that's up to date. Another thing that we're always thinking about is how we talk about digital equity as part of both access and adoption. And, and how does that affect not only the digital redlining piece and really like tugging at that thread, but also thinking about how do we support local officials being able to come up with their own solutions when ISPs might have just said, you know what, it's not profitable and we don't want to go there. So the thing is, what are we doing to make sure that local officials can either build, whether it's their own networks, they can partner to, to make networks, whether it's community leaders coming up with mesh networks that they've had to during the pandemic, also co-ops, which are another underutilized tool, which have been proven ways to provide high connectivity at low cost. So how can we tap into some of those resources to enable communities to provide connectivity solutions for themselves? And then finally, as an overarching concern, we always want to make sure that we're not just reacting when we're talking about broadband policy. We need to be able to be in a proactive posture to give a clear-eyed view of what do we want. So what does it look like for every single person, every single resident in every corner of this country to be able to participate on a high speed network. What does that look like? What does it feel like? What does it take? What's my part? Because I think that there is a misconception that if I'm connected, I'm okay. And what the COVID pandemic unceremoniously revealed is that when your neighbor's not connected, 
and you have thousands of people in your neighborhood that aren't connected, that is a drag on an entire community. It means more money that goes to social services. It means lower educational outcomes. It means poor health outcomes. It translates into a cost that is shouldered by every single household that they touch. So I think it's important for us to rethink how we talk about the digital divide, and also the shared solutions in how we actually achieve universal access. I love it. And I am really excited to keep up with your work and read your report. Thank you so much, Francella. I hope that you'll come back and and keep us posted on everything you're working on. Thank you so much. This was amazing. Thank you. Thank you so much, Francella Ochillo, for your time. And thank you to our producer, Tian Fu, for making this episode. Be sure to subscribe to the Light Reading Podcast for more episodes of The Divide, as well as interviews and insights from the Light Reading team. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time.